Hello there, I'm Patrick Strofe, trusted authority in executive and transactional liability and founder of Rubicon M&A Insurance Services. Now a proud member of the Liberty Company Insurance Broker Network. Welcome to M&A Masters, where I speak with the leading experts in mergers and acquisitions. And we're all about one thing here, that's a clean exit for owners, founders, and their investors. Today, I'm joined by Bill Snow, investment banker and author of Mergers and Acquisitions for Dummies. I they had to come up with a, one for dummies for this, so this is great. Bill, great to have you here. Welcome to the show. Patrick, thank you for having me. What a pleasure. Now, before we get into Mergers and Acquisitions for Dummies, and going forward for brevity, I'm just going to call it M&A for Dummies. But That's before fine. we get into that, let's, let's start with you and get a little context. What led you to this point in your career? That's a great question. For years, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. I had sales jobs, management jobs. I was working for a publicly traded retailer. We were buying up little mom and pop retail operations a long, another lifetime ago. And I eventually segued into, well, I want to do more startups and where do business ideas come from? So I worked for some angel funded companies and friends and family, worked my way up the food chain, worked for a venture funded company. We were a matchmaker between entrepreneurs and venture capitalists. And along the way of banging my head against the wall and trying to play the venture capital game, you end up learning quite a bit about business and how to read a balance sheet to make phone calls and sell and figure things out and et cetera, et cetera. So a former colleague of mine went to work for middle market investment bank. Everybody always wants to know, how do you become an investment banker? And of course, my question is, why why would you want to do this? Did you fall down the stairs this morning and hit your head? So I turned down the job, I think four or five times. Hmm. And the, the founder of that firm got me in a moment of weakness. And he said, I'm not taking no for an answer. And I said, okay, fine, I'll be an investment banker. So that's how I got into the investment banking racket. Um, I, I was not looking forward to another sales job. As you learn in this, when you're selling a business, you're really not selling, you're, you're buying, you're looking for the right buyer. And it was, it was a great fit. I really enjoyed it, had a lot of success. And by, and we can talk about this a little bit by, by staying active and, and always being open to new ideas that eventually led to the book deal. I know we'll come up to that in a little bit. Well, I think we're going to come up with it right now. And just for trivia's sake out there, there are over 240 books that are entitled Subject for Dummies. And I mentioned before, I mean, we had to get one for mergers and acquisitions, so <laughs> it's natural that it eventually got here. Yeah. yeah. What led you to think about writing about mergers and acquisitions? And at the same time, this isn't your first book. So talk about writing sure. in general and then, and then mergers and acquisitions for dummies. Sure. Writing is, is something that I've always wanted to do, even though I didn't have much practice. And for a long time, I didn't have much to to say or even know what I wanted to write about. And for me, writing, being able to be a good writer, being able to use words to explain. When I when I looked at, of course, I wrote a 8,000 word essay on this when I started thinking about this. This is what I do. I'm a writing preference learner. I have ideas. I have to write them down, which is why writing the, the Four Dummies book on M&A was so helpful. But practice and repetition. If you want to be a writer, you've got to write every day. Use of technology for me was huge. I'm old enough where I'm probably among the last of the vanguard that brought a typewriter to college. And by the time I finished college, four years later, I was in the computer lab and using WordPerfect and so forth. But back in the in the day when you had to write longhand and then 
try and type it up. Oh, that was just, it was just too painful. So the technology finally caught up. That's, that's helpful. As I mentioned earlier, having insights, something to write about, having some sort of inspiration, happy accidents. You have to be open to whatever might happen in life, finding the time and of course having confidence to write. So I wrote a book on venture capital. Uh, 20 years ago in 03. It was just something that I was upset about. A business meeting that didn't go well. Uh, somebody asked me, what the blank do you know about venture capital? And I had been working on an article. I didn't know where this article was going to be published. And I thought, well, I'm going to finish that article. That meeting was a disaster. And as I kept writing, I thought, well, now it's going to be a two-part. Now it's going to be a 10-part. Okay, I'll make it a book. Oh, you know what? I'm going to be fancy. I'm going to weave a narration through this and have a lot of fun. So I just did that just for myself, just to I had a bee in a bonnet, so to speak. And I didn't know what to do with it. This is 03. So I sent it out and all kinds of people forwarded it. And I was a mini viral hit before viral hit was a thing. And I remember thinking if I knew what I was doing, I could do something because I was being contacted by venture capital firms and with a lot of thank yous and uh, good ideas, bad ideas, all kinds of people. A few years later, this is when I morphed into middle market investment banking after I wisely turned down the job four or five times and was really enjoying that doing well. Wiley Publishing contacted me to write a book. So that's how it came. That's the lesson. Anybody thinking about how you connect, you can't ask. Well, there's a time to ask, but you have something to offer. So I wrote a book on venture capital, had a certain flair to the way I wrote it and had some fun. And and, and hopefully there's a lot of good information that's helpful to people. So Wiley found me. They wanted to do LBOs for dummies. And I thought, yeah, I'll do it. And I thought, well, what's an LBO? Leverage buyout. That's just a form of using debt. It's a financing tool. Okay, that's good. Can I really write a book? I don't know. And I said, who would who would buy that? And they said, those guys on Wall Street who do those billion-dollar deals. And I said, well, there's six of them, right? And I'm not going to teach those guys anything. And I started thinking, let's broaden this a little bit. Instead of just financing, one angle of financing, how about the whole process? And it hit me right there. M&A for dummies, mergers and acquisitions for dummies. And they said, that's a stupid idea, Bill. Who would buy such a stupid book? And I said, I don't know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, business owners, students, I don't know. And they said, that's a stupid idea. So the, the whole thing came to a crashing halt. We already negotiated a contract, by the way. Two years later, Wiley contacted me and they had a new idea. They let me know it was theirs. They thought of it. They're in Hoboken, New Jersey. They're really quick there. Mm-hmm. Mergers and acquisitions for dummies, Bill. We thought of it, not you. Would you like to write it? And of course, I said, that's a brilliant idea. I wish I could think of stuff yeah. like that. So I'm, I'm exaggerating a little bit. Really not that much. So I, I talk about happy accidents. That was a happy accident, being contacted. If I would have put together a plan for that to happen, never would have happened. But I had uh, demonstrated skill and ability, both in terms of knowledge and writing ability, and through a happy accident, publisher contacted me. So that was written in 10, published in 11, and 12 years later, they contacted me again, and we just released a couple months ago the second edition of the book, May 31st, it came out. Well, the the thing about these you know books for dummies is it's kind of a how-to, so for the do-it-yourselfers out there, yeah. uh, you know, is a you know a starting point for them to see how they can get that. And what's nice is where you were targeting now. You're not targeting the billion dollar deals. You're looking in a marketplace where we have owners and founders of lower middle market companies. So there's a huge wealth of companies out there that are available to be sold. And conversely, there are a lot more buyers than there were years ago because between you've got search funders who are just individuals looking to buy something, you have private equity on a slightly upstream, you've got independent sponsors. And so you've got a lot of players in this. And, you know, inexperienced and some with experience, what can they get from M&A for Dummies? 
Yeah, that's that's a great question. What the book lays out is a process, step-by-step process is part of the book. And it's peppered with a lot of other things, how to negotiate, how to structure deals, uh, due diligence, how to put the materials together, how to review the materials. All the things that go along with buying or selling a business are in that book. I would recommend anybody with a business hire a capable advisor to help them with the, 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 the book. They can do it themselves. I think that would be a foolish thing to do. When you work with a capable investment banker, we act as what? A buffer. We're between the seller and the buyer. Sometimes the seller is upset venting okay we can be a so, uh, shoulder to cry on and 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 then be able to pass along that message in maybe a little more professional manner to the, the buyer without blowing up the deal a uh, full-time focus investment bankers that's what we do a business owner trying to sell the business they have a full-time job running the company if they try to do both they just start running out of time uh, emotions we can keep emotions out of it somebody who's close to the business making all the decisions knows all the good things and all the mistakes all the embarrassing things that happened they might get emotional. It might be a third rail that someone's touching. Well, we we are an arm's length away, so that's very helpful. We tend to be prepared. We know what's going to happen next. We frame the discussion. So in other words, we, as much as possible, we want to be proactive. Somebody who hasn't done this before is going to be reactive to the buyer. They're going to be constantly reacting to what somebody else is doing. We, as much as possible, when we're selling, want to be proactive and get the buyers to react to us. We've got confidentiality. So if we are representing a seller, we can contact the buyers without letting them know that company ABC is for sale. If somebody calls from company ABC and says, hi, I've got a, uh, a company. I'm not going to tell you my name. You can figure it out who's who's uh, uh, calling. So those are some just some of the, the reasons that you, why you'd want to work with an investment banker when you're selling your business. I, and I, I sincerely believe that where comfort is, is because um, particularly on the sell side, sellers, it's not that they're naive. They're just inexperienced in the process. And sure. I think if somebody were to give them the game plan saying, look, look, here's the process. Here's some things to expect. There may be some surprises along the way, but let's lay out how the path should look and then go from there. And I think that's a great way where they don't have to do it themselves. At least they can see things coming and a capable investment banker or a sell-side advisor is going to hold their hand, shepherd them through and actually save them not only time and money, but just wear and tear on their soul. Because yeah. if you're in an area that's unfamiliar, you're going to worry, you know, particularly because you just don't want to get it wrong. You've got legacy issues, family issues, other obligations. Out Absolutely. Yeah. 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 You know, you know, when we spoke, one of the things, because I asked a lot of my guests, you know, what separates you from all the other capable professionals out there? And one of the things that we talked about, not to steal your thunder, is that you really have a great keen eye for negotiations. And sure. it was interesting how you pointed out to me, hey, let's see how your negotiations go with a prospective investment banker because what's the lesson you told me? <laughs> the way your investment banker negotiates with you when you're putting the agreement together is how that person will negotiate for you. And the trick there is ask for a fee agreement, cut the fees to the bone. I'm prepared to work on this basis. And if somebody accepts that lowball offer, don't hire them. Because when the going gets tough in your deal, buyers trying to retrade or do something to lower the price, if that investment banker folded like a house of cards when you put a little bit of pressure, 
guess what they're going to do when you have a much bigger transaction, the value of the entire company, they're going to fold as well. Negotiating is a key part. People think it's pounding the table, think it's bluffing, mm-hmm. things like that. It's it's not that. If you bluff, you're going to get found out. If you pound the table, lie in the sand, all that kind of stuff, people just walk away. The key lesson is you have to be able to read the strength of your hand in comparison to the other table. So if you've got, it's like playing cards. If if you have a weak hand, you've got to get out of the game as quickly as possible with as little damage as possible. If you have a strong hand, and this is the key thing, I think where a lot of people make mistakes, a strong hand, people will overplay a strong hand. They get a great hand. They start betting the maximum bet right away. And what happens? Everybody falls. Congratulations, you won the ante. So you have to, if you've got a strong hand, you've got to know how to play that without inadvertently chasing away the potential buyers as well. And, you know, the, the issue also is because you're in a business, even though the seller may be out on one transaction, you're dealing with buyers and there are repeat buyers out there. And you and I are very familiar with, we don't want to poison the well with one sure. deal. And I think sure. that mutual respect and that experience is a real value add, particularly for sellers who don't know who all the prospective buyers are. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. As much as possible, you want to remain professional. And that's another reason why to hire an intermediary, an investment banker, somebody to help with the transaction. I've had clients too, great clients, great people, but very excitable, hot-headed people that got completely upset about some issues were going through the process. And without me or somebody on my team in the middle to be able to deflect and be the buffer, the whole deal would have probably blown up. And and that those are the types of things that can happen out there. Now, because I don't want to take away some of your steam with regard to your practice as an investment banker, let's talk about that. Tell me what your profile of an ideal client is. Who are you looking to serve? Sure, sure. We get hired by the owner of the business. So we want to contact or be in contact with the owner of the business. That might be the president or the CEO, or that person might have a piece of the company or certainly be an influencer. But the the final decision maker is going to be the decision. It's going to be the owner of the business. That is who we want to be contacted with when we're looking to sell a business. I also want to be in contact with service providers. I get a lot of leads through lawyers, accountants, wealth managers, commercial bankers, some other uh, service providers that might have the ear of a business owner. So a lot of my marketing is geared towards connecting with those people and staying in touch with those people, keeping my name, my firm top of mind. So when they have those opportunities, they're thinking of me and at least putting my name on a short list so I get a chance to to bid on something and, and pitch on a mandate. No limitation uh, regionally or geographically? Well, I'm in Chicago, so a lot of my clients, a lot of the work is in the Midwest, uh, mm-hmm. although we've had clients from coast to coast, and that's not an issue as, as well. Well, one of the things that's really assisted in the you know huge deployment of mergers and acquisitions transactions, where it's literally exploded, not only from private equity, but from a lot of walks of life, uh, is the emergence of insurance coming in to transfer a lot of risk from these transactions away from the players to an insurance company called Reps and Warranties Insurance. I'm just curious, Bill, from your perspective, good, bad, or indifferent, what's been your experience with Reps and Warranties Insurance? Yeah, that, that's something we're, we're starting to see more of. I uh, can't say I'm going to be the expert. I have to lean on you. Patrick. So when we have that, I'll be in touch with you uh, for the specifics. But the pricing has certainly come down where being able to ensure the reps and warranties, the promises that the seller makes 
with an insurance product and then that premium is paid by the buyer sometimes they they split it uh that can make sense so instead of putting say 10 percent of the proceeds you might put a smaller piece and you know the numbers what half a half a point or something like that uh in escrow so there's a lot more money that the seller gets at close and then they have to ask well, is this worth spending some money on a premium to get this money? Or am I just going to wait, whatever, 12 months, 18 months to get the money? And it's up to them. But it, it's a it's a great product. We're seeing that a lot more. And, and you know better than me, the pricing is coming down where some of these smaller transactions, it, it starts to make sense where a few years ago, it, it didn't make sense for uh, smaller transactions. Yeah, the traditional, they're called buy-side rep and warranty policies, where the buyer is the policyholder. Uh, involved a great deal of underwriting, the buyer's diligence. It required an underwriting fee of between forty dollars and $50,000 just to get the research done on the policy. And the policies are, quite frankly, they're six, they're six and seven-figure premium items. But they're designed for $100 million-plus deals. Now, the market has come down to entertain risks at 50 million, 40 million. They're, they're, they're beginning yeah. to come down there yeah. Yeah. where uh, I'm beginning to reach out to investment bankers like you and sell side advisors is what do you do about deals where owners and founders have a company that's valued between a million and 25 million? What do they do? And there's a new program out there. It's a sell-side policy where the seller's the policy holder. It's triggered when the seller gets a demand from the buyer of a breach. Seller reports it to the carrier. Carrier pays the buyer. It's a sell-side rep and warranty policy called Transactional Liability Private Enterprise, TLPE. What's great about this, it requires minimum time for underwriting. Is a cost of between fifteen and twenty thousand dollars per million dollars in limits. You can get a TLP policy for your company that's less than an underwriting fee on larger ones. And yeah. what's nice is it's a great way to transfer risks because there are a lot of sellers out there that you know what a million dollars is a lot of money to lose. And if they can get some kind of protection from there, that's why we want to have it out there. So we're very proud that, you know, the market is dynamic and coming in to fill new needs. And so that's what we're looking to do is come into that sub $30 million space with that area. Well, Bill, 2023 started off slow, at least by my expectations. A lot of other people, uh, as I talked to, think the same thing. Uh, now we're looking, we're midway through the year. What trends do you see going forward? Yeah, that's a great question that comes up all the time. People are always looking to time the market. When's the right time to go to market? Because they want to sell, of course, at the at the maximum price. I'm reminded of a, a friend in college who would go through all the, the charts of, of stocks in the books when we actually had textbooks before everything was on computers. And he would always pick the stock at the lowest point and say, wouldn't it be great if we would have bought then? And he'd pick the absolute highest point. And I want to sell there. And I'd always tell him, that's never going to happen. Just be happy with the profit. So timing the market is near impossible. The focus on on business owners, what they should focus on is the company because the underlying fundamental in M&A is M&A is microeconomic. Yeah, the, the greater economy certainly can have an impact on terms of valuations, but the demand from buyers, as you, you mentioned earlier, is high, remains high, whether it's an individual looking to buy a company, the search funds, uh, private equity firms, corporate buyers, et cetera, it's family offices, the, the amount of buyers, everybody and their mother wants to buy a company. Bringing a good company to market is difficult. And I think that the low interest rate environment of the last decade and a half, roughly until recently, has been very devastating. I mean, you talk to anybody on a fixed income, talk to them about the returns they're getting. And so business owners, 
have been looking at, well, let's see, maybe it's time to sell the business. Let's see what happens. Okay, maybe I get a little bit more valuation. That's nice. Three people show up at the the closing, the buyer, the seller, and Uncle Sam. Uncle Sam's going to take somewhere around a third. So you're left with some money after you pay off the bank, after you pay the investment banker, the lawyer, maybe some other people. What are you left with? 50%, something like that. I've got to now live the rest of my life on that. Okay, I'm not going to put it in the stock market because I don't want to put principal at risk. I need income. I need to find something that is generating income. Let's see. Fixed income is paying what? Half a point? Forget it. I'm going to keep my money. I'll keep my capital in the business, clip a coupon, and keep getting my income that way. I'll hire a president, a GM, somebody to run the business, and I will keep my money there because I can get a higher return without having to pay all those taxes by keeping my money in the business. So I think hopefully what will happen with higher interest rates you can get a higher, not I hope, you can now get a higher rate of return on a fixed income product. Will that bring more people into the market? Okay, now I can get a reasonable return without putting principal unduly at risk. I think that will happen. People, you, know, you have to keep in mind that M&A, as I've said, is, is sell side, okay? And it is microeconomic. So great, here's the check. Great company in a bad economy is going to get a really good deal, okay? Mm-hmm. Growing, growing profits, strong EBITDA margin, uh, no concentration, all the things that you want in a great company. I don't care if the economy is good or bad, they're going to get a really good deal, if not a great deal. Flip it around, great economy, growing like gangbusters, but you have a struggling company, okay? Declining revenue, maybe losing money, big customer just fired them. That company will struggle to find bids. So you have to focus on the company. It is microeconomic, not macro. Yeah, the macro sometimes can factor, but it is microeconomic when you're selling a company. Bill Snow, author of M&A for Dummies and also Venture Capital 101, which I got to mention with Venture Capital 101, is a great brief business book read. It's an easy read. It's not some big, long tome out there. What I liked about it was with venture capital, for those people who are unaware, there's this huge myth that are these very wealthy investors or companies that are just literally throwing money at anybody with a good idea. And they've got tons of cash because they got it on the ground floor on Facebook and Airbnb. And so they've got cash to burn. You dispel that entire myth, give great working steps on how to understand that sector. And so it can be an esoteric, complex sector. You make it simple. You do the exact same thing with M&A for dummies. And so I really encourage folks to take a look at this, particularly even if you're not in the market today, it's a great reference point just to give you some perspective and to manage some expectations. And with that, Bill Snow, how can our audience members find the books? Uh, plural, and also how can they find you? You can find me at my very creatively named website, billsnow.com, or some people say Bills Now. Why would I want to pay Bills Now? And that has links to, well, that has links to me and the books. You can find the books wherever any, well, you can find the M&A book where any fine books are sold, which is typically Amazon these days. Uh, Barnes & Noble sells at Books A Million. Any other retailer will have it. The The ebook, so Venture Capital 101 was, was self-published. That's on Amazon. So you can go to Amazon and find Venture Capital 101 as well. If you need more than an hour to read that book, see a doctor. Bill Snow, M&A for Dummies. Thanks for being here. It was a real pleasure meeting you and having you on the show. You bet, Patrick. Thank you. 